You know, hope can be a precarious thing. It can be a very fragile thing, especially depending on where we put our hope. And I think sometimes we confuse biblical hope with kind of worldly hopes and dreams and desires, and that's, that's, a, that's a dangerous path to tread, and we want to hopefully today not do so much of that. Over my break, I hoped to catch some largemouth bass in northern Mississippi, biggins, as they say in Mississippi. I drove 950 miles there with the hope of catching lots of bass with my cousin Josh, and I drove 950 miles back, and I caught one fish. It was maybe a pound. One day I hoped in the last month to mow my entire yard front, side, and back. And I'd done the front, and I was along the side where my neighbor has some railroad ties as part of their landscaping. And, and I was doing that next, and then I hoped to move on to the backyard and finish it because I hate to leave anything unfinished. And while I'm mowing along the timbers, I bumped the timbers with the lawnmower, of course, and was uh, promptly swarmed and attacked by bees and was stung five times. And, and so my hope to finish mowing the yard did not come to pass. A couple of weeks ago, went to Billy Jean's house, watched a wonderful Spurs game, was driving home about 10.15, and, and I hoped that the police officer would give me a warning for not stopping completely at the stop sign. Drivers beware, Jackson and Methodist Encampment. I hoped he would give me a warning. I even asked him, I said, are you in a mood to give a warning tonight? And he said, I never give a warning on stop signs. My hope was dashed. And I made a $200 charitable contribution <laughs> to the city of Kerrville. During my break, Kim and I hoped to go down to San Antonio to church a couple of times because we wanted to go hear Max Licato preach, and, and I wanted to hear John Hagee preach. I wanted to see what all the fuss was about and to, and, to, and to hear these great and famous preachers, and we hoped to do that. And so we went online to their churches, and lo and behold, both of them were out of their pulpits for the entire month of November. And I turned to Kim and I said, I guess all the great preachers take November off. <laughs> And my sweet wife agreed, so. <laughs> See, it's very care- you must be very careful where you put your hope. Fish and mowing yards and persuading police officers and, and even preachers are no good place to fasten your hope. So where do we turn? What are we looking for? What are we anticipating will certainly come true? Look at verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. We're going to hone in on this, this one verse this morning. This is our only verse of concentration as we work through this practice of the believer. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now... Let's step back. It has been a while since we've been in 1 Peter. We left off about a month ago with verse 12. Let me step back and give you the big picture once again of this book. The big picture is this. It breaks into three nice sections. Chapter 1, verse 3 to chapter 2, verse 10 is the salvation of believers. And we've looked already at the praise of believers for this great salvation. And it's three components of past, present, and future. 
He then moves in in this section to the practice of believers. And then he'll talk about the position of believers. All of this under the umbrella of the salvation of believers. By the way, if you want to be reading through 1 Peter, a good way to break it down is the way I'm doing it now. Break it down into these three sections. The second one is the submission of believers. That's chapter 2 verse 11 to chapter 3 verse 12. The submission of believers. And then finally the third major heading and section is the suffering of believers. 313 through the end of the book. Now these categories are not hard and fast. They bleed into each other a little bit. There is some overlap. But here is 1 Peter. Salvation, which leads to submission to various authorities in your life, which leads to what? Suffering. See, note the order that these are laid out for us. Apart from this salvation, there wouldn't be the suffering. And there wouldn't be the submission. But when God intervenes in our life and and changes our hearts, that puts us in a position to have a desire to submit to authority. And then that submission to authority will often bring suffering into our lives. And so the order is critical. In our section, we're now moving from praise of believers in three, verse 3 through verse 12 of chapter 1 to the practice of believers in light of this salvation. You see the first word of verse 13, therefore, or for this reason. It looks back to that whole section and says, because all of this is true, because God has caused us to be born again and so forth, we are to live a certain way. We must live a certain way. We will live a certain way because of these truths. Such as verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, the therefore looks back to that verse, and it looks back to verse 5 as well. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Therefore, live a certain way. Or verse 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, fix your hope. So we're moving then from the indicative to the imperative. From the statement of fact to commands or exhortations or imperatives based on those statements of fact. And there are five that we begin this morning of these commands. Number one is fix your hope. In verse 13. Number two is be holy. In verse 15. Number three is conduct yourselves in fear. In verse 17. Number four is love one another. In verse 22. And number five is long for the pure milk of the word. In chapter 2 and verse 2. Those are the five messages that are coming in the weeks ahead. Up to bat first then. Is a decisive Or definite hope in future grace from verse 13. Now here's the outline this morning. First, I'm going to give you some prerequisites to obey this command. Next will be the urgent call to hope. And then finally, what is the object of hope? Alright, so number one, prerequisites to hope. Two, the call to hope. And number three, the object of our hope. So we begin with the prerequisites... To this definite hope of believers. So this is like when we're going to paint the house. You know, we got to scrape and we got to sand first before we can paint. There are some prerequisites. This is like before you can take 
College class 301, you've got to take 101 and 201. And in this case, there are two of these prerequisites right there in verse 13 that lead us off. They, the grammar of this shows that these must happen first. These are preparatory for the command of fixing your hope. That's the main command. These others lead into it. Prepare the way for it. The first is translated, prepare your minds for action. A literal reading of that is, gird up the loins of your mind. So the first prerequisite is a call to a decisive mental action, not a physical action. Something that happens up here between the ears. Gird up, he's saying, what goes through your mind. Gird up what travels through your thought processes. And this is essential if you're going to fix your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you. And so we have now stumbled upon a clothing metaphor in the Bible. Can you believe it? A clothing metaphor. And this is the only use of this phrase or this word in the entire New Testament. Peter is looking at the wardrobe of his readers and he's teaching them something about spiritual life. In the ancient world, they wore these long flowing robes, right? And you even think back to the Exodus and the command they had, the literal command they had to gird up the loins of their, uh, of their, of their robe, gird up their robe, put on their sandals, eat in haste, and be ready to get out of here. Exodus chapter 12. Peter probably has that picture in his mind as he writes to these folks who wore these long robes. And what he is saying to them is just as that person, if he is going to run a race, he must first take up all the loose ends of that robe and tuck it in so that he is unhindered in his race. If he is going into battle, you can't have all of this stuff loose and flowing that would trip and distract. You gather it up and you tuck it in. If you're going to do a, a certain types of work, it can be dangerous to have loose clothing. You know, you get sucked into a paper shredder, you know, by your tie. You got to gird up. You got to protect yourself. So that's the metaphor here. What he is saying in this, prep, this prerequisite is this. Don't let your mind wander into ungodly and unhelpful areas that will only slow you down and impede your progress. Gird up the loins of your mind. Gather up loose thoughts and tuck them in. This is a call then to fight mental drift. On a positive side, it's a call to concentrate. It's a call to focus. It's a call to eliminate distractions, to draw in distractions, and to get our minds fixed and focused and not all over the place. He's saying, don't let your thoughts drift after this or that momentary attraction. Look, squirrel. No, there's not a squirrel. And who cares if there was one? It's just a squirrel. Stay focused, he's saying. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. Our thoughts are like travelers, aren't they? Travelers can get lost. They can wander off the path. They can take a wrong turn. They can waste a lot of time, gas, energy. Our minds must stay out of the ravine of regret. Listen, we can't hope if we're bogged down in the ravine of regret. Our minds can't wander off into the weeds of worry and still have hope. These things are polar opposites. 
Neither can our minds go into the gunk of the gutter and have hope. You've got to see this. This is so hope just doesn't happen out of out of thin air. It doesn't just come from a from oh I just want to be hopeful today and I'm going to think about the heaven. No, there's some things that must take place beforehand with our thoughts. You see, weary thoughts are like weary travelers. They can wander. They can stray. We can forget where home base is. You got these GPS systems in our car, right? These are very helpful. If they've got good data, <laughs> if they've got good information plugged into them. See, our minds have this GPS. You need to know where home base is. When the thoughts start to wander, you've got to know what base is. You've got to know how to find that button that says, go home. Thoughts, go home. Quit wandering around in all of these paths that lead nowhere. So that's the first of these two prerequisites. Gird up the loins of your minds. Second one is the phrase, keep sober in spirit. This is now in present tense. It's calling for a continual action. It's really an attitude. It's one word in Greek. It's just free from intoxication. Free from the effects of wine. Stay or keep sober, Peter is saying. Here then is a call to stay continually alert and morally awake. I love this. It's, it's, a, it's a call to stay well-balanced, self-controlled. Now, this didn't happen to me during my break, but you know what happens if someone is suspected of drunk driving and the police officer pulls them over and they have them come out of the car and they're trying to discern, does this person have the ability to stay what? Balanced. Can they walk a straight line? Can they, can they take their finger and do that? Can they stand still in one place without wobbling? And that will help them determine are further tests needed. Is this person well balanced or are they intoxicated? You see. And so that's what this word means. Keep sober. Keep well balanced in your life. Be able to walk a straight line. Be free from unhelpful influences on your thinking. Do not be easily knocked off balance by life's curveballs. Don't succumb to life's highs or lows. Stay well balanced. Stay even keeled, he's saying. Stay sober. Keep your head. Keep your perspective. No matter what is happening to you, no matter what is happening around you, keep your head. That's what this word means. This is so essential to fixing our hope on that which is to come. This is a call not to panic. Don't overreact. Don't underreact. Keep a proper perspective. Keep God's perspective on what's happening to you and around you. Don't lose control. Don't live by your emotions. Listen, don't rise so high that you think you have found heaven on earth. And don't sink so low that you fall into despair like you are living in hell itself. Keep perspective you have to do this if you want to fix your hope this little phrase keep sober is is a call to be steady eddy <laughs> to be calm cool and collected don't fall apart don't get too elated peter 
loves this word. This is one of his favorites. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. And this is just missing in so much Christianity that is a call to so much emotion and so much passion, you know. And passion's a good thing. But you don't really hear much about a call to sobriety, do you? And I'm not just talking about freedom from alcohol. I mean sober in life. He says, the end of all things is near, chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. Alert, mentally awake, morally on guard, not sleepwalking through the minefields of life. Stay sober. Chapter 5, verse 8, he uses this word again. He says in verse 7, we are to cast all of our worries on God, all of our anxieties, because He cares for us. And then verse 8, be of sober spirit. Be sober. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Why do you think Peter loves this word so much now as he writes 1 Peter years into his life? He loves this word so much because he was so often the opposite. Peter boasted in his fidelity and before the night was out, denies the Lord three times. Peter was not sober in that garden. He was not well balanced. He let himself get carried away with his emotions of how strong he was in the faith. And he denies the Lord three times. Prior to that, Peter looks out. There's Jesus walking on the water. He jumps out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus in his exuberance. But then in the next moment, he begins to sink because of the waves and the wind. Peter was rash and brash and headstrong. Peter needed to learn to be sober in life, to be well balanced and even keeled. And so do we. So do we. This is a mark of maturity. So let's illustrate these two prerequisites now as we think about their importance in us having a hope fixed. We can think of the girding up of the loins of our minds and staying sober as two wings. You know, no bird can soar without two wings working. And these are the two wings that we soar upward in hope toward the things of God. Or maybe this will help you understand it. A concert pianist cannot play music that anyone wants to hear without the prerequisites of disciplined practice. With the practice of these two disciplines, our souls can know the soothing music of hope. We must pull in loose thoughts, gather up those things that impede and lead nowhere, and we must stay well balanced if we are to fix our hope on the grace that is to come to us. Let's uh, let's try to understand this a little deeper. Our thoughts cannot be drifting to fears of the future and live in hope at the same time. Our thoughts cannot be coming unraveled with worry and fix our hope because hope by definition is future oriented. Hope is anticipating something that God will yet do for us. 
Our thoughts cannot be intoxicated with this world and still have hope fixed on the next world. Hope is a sanctified, future-oriented mental exercise. A sanctified, future-oriented mental exercise that can only come from a mind that is restraining wayward thoughts and staying sober. If a person is not thinking about the return of Christ, one of three things is true in that person's life. Number one, the first possibility is they're not saved. If a person does not regularly think about the return of Jesus Christ and seeing Him face to face, the first possibility is you're not saved because you have to have faith before you can have hope. Only those with saving faith have biblical hope. The second possibility, if you're not often thinking about the return of Christ, is that you are consumed with worry. You see, worry cannot coexist with hope in the same brain at the same time. And then the third possibility is you're drunk on this world. Freedom from this world and the love of this world can't coexist in the same mind at the same time. If you don't hear anything, please hear this this morning. Hope is a moral issue. Hope is an obedience to God issue. This is not the icing on the Christian cake of salvation. This is essential, foundational, fundamental to being a Christian. This is what Christians do by their very definition. We have hope in the future. And this is a command to us here in verse 13 to fix our hope on this grace. If our faith in Christ has not secured our future, then what's the point, right? If there isn't something beyond the grave, then forget about it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? Isn't this what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. That's a pathetic Christian that hopes in Christ in this life only, Paul says. So this is essential to what it means to be Christian. To have this hope. That brings us to the second of our three headings, the urgent call to a definite hope. The urgent call. So there in the middle of verse 13, we come to the imperative of the verse. We come to the thrust and the main idea of this verse, which is to fix your hope completely. To fix your hope completely. I'll stop there. This is an urgent call. This is a decisive call. This is something that we willingly do in our minds. And he's calling us to do it now. Do it now. Don't wait. This is a command for the believer to actually, actually rely on what God has said He will yet do for you. To rely on it. To hope in it. To lean completely there. And I love that part of it. He says, fix your hope how? Completely. Fix your hope perfectly. Decisively. Fix your hope without reservation. Without hesitation. Without doubt. Hold nothing back here, He says. This is why this is so different from worldly aspirations and worldly desires and worldly hopes. We can go all in here, beloved. We can put 100% confidence in this hope 
that awaits us. No diversification needed. No hedging of your bets. No keeping back something in reserve. If you are playing the card game of Rook, this is shoot the moon. I'm going all out in this hand, in this hope. It's fixed, it's settled, it's fastened, I'm convinced, I'm confident. Fix your hope completely, he says. How can he say this? Why does he say this? Look back again at verse 3. As he's praising God for salvation, this is the God who has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ is dead, we can have no hope. But Christ is alive, so our hope is sure. Our hope is certain. Look at verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. This inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. Well, I've got to get there. Okay, that's what verse 5 is for. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's just waiting on you. See, there's nothing shaky here, is there? There's nothing hesitant in Peter's words. There's nothing lacking confidence in this sure inheritance. Peter is not exercising wishful thinking here. That's what we do with the weather and ball games and hunting trips. That's where wishful thinking comes in. That's not what this is. There are no odds at play here, folks. There's no risk involved here. None. There are no trends to analyze, no market to study, nothing to measure. Peter's tone exudes confidence, surety, and certainty. This is a 100% guarantee or your money back kind of hope. And it's definite and decisive. Third heading. What is the object of this hope? Where does he want us to land? So we go through life with all of its mystery. We go through life with all of its surprises. Shocking things happen to us. Mundane things happen to us. Our future, from our perspective, is unknown, uncertain, as far as the things that will go on between now and glory. Where do we bring those loose thoughts as we gird them up? How are we going to stay fixed and well-balanced and stable? That brings us to the object of our hope, where it's, where it's placed, where it's fastened. He says, I want you to fix your hope completely on the grace. On the grace. To be brought to you. And it's personal there. It's intimate there. To you. When? Where? How? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is fascinating language. This hope is so certain, even though it is yet in the future, because he's speaking of the the return of Christ, right? We know it's something in the future, yet it is so certain in Peter's mind that he uses a present tense verb to describe it. He says, it is right now being brought to you. 
It's like a freight train loaded with grace and it's already left the depot. It's on the way. Car after car after car overflowing with grace that's going to come to you and to me at this moment in history. The definite decisive object of our hope then is a certain future grace, a final grace, a seal the deal kind of grace for our Christian journey. And this is where all of our hope must be fixed. That raises the question, can you have plans? Can you have dreams and aspirations and ambitions and goals? Why, by all means, certainly you should. But have no other hope. (laughs) No other hope than the grace that is coming your way. This is a grace that God will confer upon us at the disclosure of Jesus Christ. And it is 100% grace. We will do nothing. It is brought to us. It is carried to us. We are passive. This is a present passive participle being brought to you. It's all grace. It's sovereign grace. We will be 100% passive when this grace is brought to us. When Jesus Christ raptures His church from this planet and we see His face and we become like Him. In fact, some or all of us will be dead before this grace comes to us. That's how passive we will be. When He translates us from the grave to experience this grace. This is something that happens to us. It's not something we do. We don't participate in any action whatsoever. It's done on God's timetable, not ours. And it's done at God's good pleasure. We don't work it up. We don't bring it in, though we should pray for it. Now, why does he call it grace? Why doesn't he just say, fix your hope completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ? Because he wants us to feel the personal aspect of this and the depths of this. He calls it grace because it is 100% unearned, undeserved, and uncaused by man. It flows from God to his own as something God has promised he will yet do for us. Why does Peter call it grace? Because we will see Jesus face to face and live. That's grace, you see. To see the glorified Jesus Christ and live, that's favor. That's favor. Why does he call it grace? Because we will be translated, transferred, and transformed. There will be no more sin, no more pain, no more dying, no more Satan. I don't know if you've noticed this in the, big, in the New Testament, but this is a big deal. <laughs> The coming of Jesus Christ and what he's going to do for believers is everywhere in the New Testament. Here's a short sample. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. See, this event that Peter is referencing here is where Christ will complete his work on our behalf, where we are saved soul, spirit, and body. And everything that God had planned from all creation through Jesus Christ will finally come to full fruition for those whom God has chosen. 
those whom God has foreknown and predestined. Or Philippians 3.21, in a paraphrase, says this, Our hope eagerly waits for the Savior who will come again and transform these lowly, humble bodies and make them like His raised, immortal, and glorious body. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus is going to descend from heaven, tear open the sky. He will do so with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. This is a big deal. It's what we wait for. Or how about this? Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, that we are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That's how rapid, that's how fast this is going to happen. So I say, no wonder we are to fix our hope without reservation, hesitation, or consternation. The heart, hear me now, the heart of every mature believer says this, I can't wait. This is how our heart beats. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. Can't wait for what? I can't wait to see Jesus and to be made like Jesus. That's our hope. And I'm telling you, the heart of a mature, walking in the Spirit, sanctified believer beats with that mantra, I can't wait. Because future grace here is so precisely defined for us, the revelation of Jesus Christ, then our hope is precise. Our hope is exact. Our hope is explicit and unambiguous. As I've said before, this is not mere human wishful thinking. I wish and I desire that the spurs repeat, but I am not going to set my hope on it. Too many things can go wrong. The knees and the ankles of man are weak. And legs can break and injuries can happen. And who knows what the future could hold. Don't set your hope on something like that. I picked up the paper a few weeks ago and there's an article about how much rain we need to break our drought. It said something like we need 45 inches of rain here to really end this drought. And we pray for that and we ask for that and we wish for that. But don't set your hope on it. There's no promise that that's going to happen. Many of you are fighting illnesses and disease and agonies of age. All of us at some point. I'm here to announce this morning there is no fountain of youth. But there is a fountain of future grace. There is a fountain of future grace that awaits us. Fix your hope on future grace at the coming of Jesus, not the next presidential election. Fix your hope on the grace of the King of Kings, not the maneuvering of the Republicans and the Democrats. Fix your hope on the judge of all men who brings grace to his own, not the justices of the Supreme Court. Do not fix your hope on the stock market, on perfect health, on perfect kids, or on world-renowned doctors. Do not set your hope on the arm of the flesh. Do not set your hope on the goodness of man. Do not set your hope on the military might of America. We pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, but we set our hope on future grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have to understand what is certain in our future and what is not. Please listen to me very, very carefully. If you are a true Christian, the only certainty in your life is that God will keep you until He confers grace upon you at the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That is your only certainty. We may lose our minds in this life, but one day we will know fully as we are known. We may lose our legs in this life, but those united in Christ will gain them back at the coming of Christ. We may lose our sight in this life, but one day we will see Him face to face. We may lose the love of our life in this life, but we will never lose our first love. There are certain things that are certain, and that's where our hope must be fastened. But if you die and you are not united to Christ, the only thing certain in your life is one, you will die. Two, you will be judged. And you will pay for your sins forever in a place of eternal torment. In a place that is all pain and no gain. All pain and no gain ever. You see, the opposite of hope is dread. And if you're not united to Christ this morning, you should dread, dread your future. Just as for the believer, our hope is certain and 100% sure, so your future is certain. If you die not united to Jesus Christ by faith, you should dread that moment more than anything you have ever feared in your life. But today you can trade in dread for hope. This is the birthright of the Christian who follows Christ. This is what we were made for. So what should we do this morning? What should we do? Believer, you should gather up those loose thoughts and tuck them in and fully fix your hope on future grace. Future grace. Believer, you should keep free from intoxication of this world so that you aren't thrown off balance. And then fully fix your hope on future grace. What must we do? We need to decisively and without reservation settle our hope once and for all on the boatloads of grace that's being brought to us when Jesus comes for His bride. If you don't have this hope this morning, if it's not in your heart saying, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait, the only thing you need to be concerned about right now, today, this hour, this moment, is this. Repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only thought you need to be concerned about in this moment of your life. Today, receive His amazing grace, the mercy of God that leads to salvation. Allow the kindness of God to lead you to repentance, to trust Christ that Jesus saves can rescue you from your sin and from eternal damnation. Receive His amazing grace today. Receive it right now. God offers it in the gospel. And then you too can prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ.